You're listening to a sermon from First Family Church. For more information and sermons, visit our website at firstfamily.church. This morning we get to hear from Dr. Ray Chang. I met Ray just um, a few months ago this year, and um, I'm not sure how God knit our heart together in a long-distance fashion. We got a little better friends in these past few days, but I think the things that, that I picked up from Ray just in getting to know him a little bit were the three things that, that really make my heart beat. And I, I think that's why I feel like I resonate with you. And I think they're, they're seen in your church. Uh, and his church, by the way, is a lot like ours. He's not some big celebrity or superstar. He's not got some mega church in California. He pastors in Brea, California, but it's a church a lot like this one. In fact, they didn't have a location until a few months ago when the, you merged with the church. And he'll tell you more about that. But uh, Ray is three things, I think. He's a, a pastor, yes. He loves people, loves shepherding, and I can resonate with that. But he loves the right answer as well, the theological aspect, the academic side, and I can resonate with that. Sometimes my biggest problems are when I'm trying to find the right answer, and folks are like, hey, could you let this go? We get the hint, you know. And, but he's also a missionary. It's hard as to reach people. And so I, I look at Ray, and then somebody talks to him. He's a missionary a pastor and, and somewhat of a theologian, I, th- I think, I thought, you know, he would fit well. So as we were listening to him earlier, my wife and I were there together. She leaned over. She goes, you know, Ray would be great at First Family. He'd be a great speaker. And I know I've told you before that the Holy Spirit's voice sounds a lot like my wife's voice a lot of times. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm getting the nudge, Jesus. I'm with you on this one, right? So anyway, we got to know each other better. And uh, Ray, we're delighted to have you. Thank you for your heart for multiplication. Uh, he's planted a church in the D.C. area, about 20 years ago or so, he moved to, to the, back to L.A., planted a church there, and from that church, which is a lot like ours, to be honest with you, even numerically, they've planted about a church a year. And so uh, he knows a good bit about multiplication, making disciples, and so thank you for just sharing your weekend with us. Come bless us, and I hope you're blessed by us listening as well. Welcome, Ray Chang, would you? Thank you. <laughs> thank you, Todd. Uh, good morning. It is an honor to be here this morning. Uh, I am really happy today. Uh, the Dodgers won last night. So as a, as a California boy, uh, for those of you, uh, you know, actually somebody gave me tickets to game six, which is coming up on Tuesday. But if they lost last night and they lost again tonight, then they would have been out. So I'm glad they won. Now there is a game six. So anyway, I'm really happy. But what makes me more happy is actually being here. Uh, this weekend, I had the uh, privilege of uh, meeting with some of the pastors uh, in this area that, and to talk a little bit about church multiplication. And this morning, I'm just going to share with you my heart of what uh, I'm passionate about and what I think the kingdom of God should be passionate about. Um, you know, there are two things that I always love being a part of, and one is uh, Missions Week or Missions Month. And, and I grew up in a church where uh, that was a, a big part of our annual kind of rhythm in the church. But the second thing I'm really passionate about is teaching God's Word. And, and I learned at this one church where I was an intern many years ago. Uh, I had graduated from seminary, and uh, there was a pastor in Southern California named Chuck Swindoll. And uh, it's called the First Evangelical Free Church of Fullerton. And uh, I had the privilege of doing my internship, residency at that church. And so uh, Pastor Chuck eventually became the president of, of Dallas Seminary and, and all that. And, and he was a master expositor. And he would always remind us as young leaders the importance and the accuracy of teaching God's Word. Well, um, at the end of my internship, I had the privilege of getting ordained. 
And so here's my ordination certificate. Uh, so it's the first evangelical free church in 1993. Now, what was neat about this ordination certificate was they asked me uh, to pick a life verse, uh, sort of that defines the ministry of what I want to be a part of. And so the uh, passage that I chose was 2 Timothy chapter 4, 1 and 2. And so this is what the verse says in 2 Timothy. It's, and every good pastor knows this because it's about preaching God's word. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who judged the living and the dead in the view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. In season, out of season, correct, rebuke, encourage, with great care, uh, patience and careful instructions, right? Well, when the ordination certificate uh, came back and I looked at it, uh, instead of 2 Timothy, it was 1 Timothy. Now some of you are wondering, what's the big deal, 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy? They're all the same thing, right? Well, here's what 1 Timothy says. <laughs> the Spirit clearly says that in latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits, things taught by demons. Such teachings come from hypocritical liars whose conscience has been seared with a hot iron. <laughs> That became my life verse, sadly. Uh, well, we were able to correct that before the ordination um, uh, presentation. But, but it was kind of a, a, a unique way of looking at Scripture that sometimes little things, small things matter. And today what we want to talk about is, 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 is in, some, in some sense a small thing, but it really uh, is an important part of what God is doing. Uh, today, I'm going to look at a few passages. I'm going to kind of walk us through kind of the purpose of God in the New Testament. And one of the things that we see is that early on in, in, in the church, that as the Apostle Paul would go around, and as he would go around from, from synagogue to synagogue, uh, oftentimes he would get kicked out of the synagogue. And after he got kicked out of the synagogue, what would happen was he would go into somebody's home. And we see that happening in a lot of different places, like Lydia, uh, a woman who uh, was a merchant. In one particular instance, after he preached uh, in Acts chapter 17, he caused the riot. And people were just, just going crazy because Paul was preaching the gospel, and people were literally turning their life around. And so the, the, the leaders, the particular uh, leaders of that city, tried to find Paul, and they couldn't find him. So they went to the house that he was staying at. It happened to be the house of Jason. And when they couldn't find him, this is what it says. And when they could not find them, Paul and his disciples, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities. Now notice what they were shouting. They were shouting this. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. I want to just camp on these words. Turn the world upside down. Isn't that a great phrase? That is the phrase that God has sort of uh, ignited a revolution where the upside down nature of the gospel turns people literally upside down. And I love that. I love the way in which the gospel is shared in such a way that people's lives are turned upside down. And in some sense, and from a heavenly perspective, right side up. But as I think about the, the gospel... Is, is if you think about it from even a sociological historical perspective, how did the gospel actually spread? How did the gospel turn the world upside down? Because if you think about it from a just purely sociological and historical perspective, 
Really, it's, it was a small little marginal cult. Uh, they're following an untrained carpenter. And from a world's perspective, it really didn't make sense. Uh, Rodney Start, who teaches uh, history and sociology at Baylor University, uh, wrote a book called the, the Rise of Christianity. And in this book, he asked that question. He says, how did an obscure, marginal Jesus cult become the dominant religious force in the Western world in a few centuries? You just think of it very objectively. It it is the greatest miracle of all time. And yet we know as Christians that the reason that the world was turned upside down was because of Jesus. That Christ, who, who was the Son of God, came down to earth, invaded earth, and as a result of that, our life was realigned back to God because that's the original purpose that God gave to us. And the effect of Jesus in culture is staggering. Uh, Dr. James Kennedy many years ago wrote a book which is entitled, What If Jesus Had Never Been Born? And he makes some profound observations. He says this, that Christianity, just by its very nature, has contributed to science. Uh, it teaches about the, nature, uh, the process of nature, and we see that some of the, the most famous scientists throughout history were Christians. And they used Christianity as a way in which they could understand nature. Secondly, Christianity has contributed to human freedom and human rights. Because Christianity entered this world, that people understood a sense of dignity, that they were created in the image of God. And as a result, that the Christians were the ones who were leading the rights of those who were marginalized. That Christianity has contributed to morality. Christianity brought dignity back to the orphans and slaves. Roman babies were literally tossed in the first century. But the church took care of the poor and the orphans. And we see that Christianity was able to make a moral revolution. Christianity also contributed to health care. Think about some of the, the practices that we now practice. Christianity was in the front lines of health care, caring for those who were the, the most sick and the most desperate. And lastly, Christianity contributed to education. The way we learn, the way we, uh, even some of the schools here founded in the U- U.S., places like Harvard and Yale, were originally founded to train Christian ministers for the gospel throughout history that Christianity has definitely made an impact. And we know Jesus has made an impact. Well, the sad reality now in our culture is that even though Christianity has the potential of being a revolutionary force, what's happening in America is, is, is sometimes a little, little bit sad. I have a little chart here. And if you look at the scope of what is happening in America, these are the three things that, that we're beginning to see. One is that there are a lot of sick and dying churches. Uh, as Todd just mentioned, we just merged about a month ago. It was a three-month process, but there was a church in Anaheim, California, about three, four miles from Disneyland, a, a, church, a Baptist church that had, had been in existence for 50 years. And in this particular church, they had dwindled down from about 700 to about 50 people. The average age was probably about 70, people, 70 years old. Uh, we had a 50-year-old who was the youngest and, and a 100-year-old named Leonard, uh, who was one of the oldest. And they were without a pastor for the last three years. And, and one of the things that we begin, are seeing more and more across America, that 70 to 80% of the churches in the U.S. are either plateaued or dying. Not only are we having a, a crisis in terms of the church getting older and, and in some sense becoming irrelevant, we're also seeing a lot of leaders, a lack of leaders. There was a survey done among um, Christian leaders at a conference, and they asked the question, what is your number one need? 
And they said the number one need is developing the future generation. As churches are getting older, we are lacking leaders. And lastly, the church has become a place, in many ways, has sort of become part of our our society, a consumer-based society, where church is not a place that you go and be part of a family. The church is a place where you go to be entertained. And the sad reality is that those three things that we see is really the opposite of what the gospel did to turn around culture. And what I want to talk about is sort of the remedy for this. It's what I call the opposite. And if I go to the next slide, it's the, the reality of what I call the three upside trends. So to remedy sick and dying churches, what God has called us to do is to plant healthy churches. See, the early purpose of the church was to expand, is to multiply and what has happened is as the, as the church has become older, as many of you know, sort of the biological reality is the older we get, the harder it is to reproduce. That instead of reproducing churches, we have just become a hospital for dying churches. So the gospel calls us to, to plant churches. But secondly, not only does the gospel call us to plant churches, gospel calls us to develop leaders. So how do you plant churches? By having godly leaders. And so throughout the New Testament, you see this example of developing leaders. And then the last thing is this. How do you then develop godly leaders? It goes back to the Great Commission. You make disciples. And if you think about the upside-down paradigm of the New Testament, how the gospel was able to cause a revolution, was these were the three things that are communicated in Scripture. And if we do these three things, I believe that a small little thing can cause a gigantic revolution. So let me just take a look at those three things and quickly just kind of uh, share these three things with you. Number one is this, that our method for turning the upside down is simply planting churches. So we see this in Matthew chapter 16. Uh, This passage is the first time that the word ecclesia or the word church is ever used in scripture. And Jesus is now having a conversation with Peter. And Peter is asking Jesus a theological question. And actually, Jesus is asking uh, Peter a theological question. He says, who do you people say that I am? And in this particular chapter, chapter 16, it's, it's sort of a transition between his earthly ministry to, to the place that he's going to go to the cross. It's very significant because he is going to now reveal his identity. So in this particular passage, he says this, and I tell you, Peter, and after Peter makes the confession, you, you are the Christ. He says, I tell you, Peter, on this rock... I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth, you'll bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, what's so significant about this first mention of the church, we see Jesus' purpose. That Jesus is the one who builds. Jesus is the one who grows. Jesus is the one who establishes. And the first thing he tells Peter is this is what's going to happen. Upon who I am, I'm going to establish a community of followers. And really what the church is, and this is where we have sort of this mistaken idea, idea of what the church is. Oftentimes we think of church as a building. Or we think of a church as a place to go. But reality is a church is all of us. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are the church. And Jesus is the one who establishes the church. But notice what the church does. And this is kind of revolutionary if you think about it. And oftentimes, uh, we have the perspective that the church is sort of in a defensive posture. 
that we have to protect ourselves from the influences of the world. And, and so I kind of grew up with that mindset that we as a church need to kind of huddle together, be in our little fortress that, you know, the world is going to overtake us. But if you look at this passage, it's, it's actually the opposite. The G, Jesus establishes church so that, notice where the sort of the passive idea is. It's not uh, us, it's the world. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that the gate is not some, some force out there that is collapsing on the church. It is a church that is to ram through this gate. And here's the next verse. This is key. And you know how we ram through it? We have a key. Notice what he says here in verse 19. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Jesus has made the promise for us. That as we establish his body, as we establish the church, what we are doing is we are creating an army that will ram through the gates of hell. And that we will, in some sense, as we open up the gates, you know what happens? We release people from bondage. We release people from prison. And that is the privilege of why we plant churches. That whenever churches are planted, that we see the gospel making a difference. And the reason that, that we don't plant churches nowadays is because we've not focused on the opposite. That we focus on, on, on the sick and the dying. And there's nothing wrong with that. But here's the thing. If we don't plant new churches, the church eventually will die. I remember somebody said to me, that the church is one generation from becoming ex- extinct. And if you think about that, it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? That if we don't reproduce, what's going to happen? If none of us in this room had babies at the next generation, eventually th- this country would eventually disappear. And so the same thing that God calls us to do is to plant churches because that is the establishment of his body in a community. So we plant churches locally. We plant churches internationally. Uh, Tim Keller, um, one of the pastors, former pastor of Redeemer Press in, uh, in um, New York said this, that Jesus' essential call was to plant churches. Virtually every, all great evangelistic challenges of the New Testament are basically the call to plant churches, not simply to share your faith. The only way we can be sure that we are increasing the number of Christians in a town is to increase the number of churches. There was a statistic that somebody gave to me. Do you know how many churches reproduce? And if you think about this, if, if uh, all of us in this room didn't have a child, uh, that eventually, at, at some point, we're going to all become extinct. Well, churches in America... I asked this question. I teach a, a class at seminary at Talbot uh, in Southern California. And I always throw out this as sort of a, it's a trick question, but it's really not a trick question. So how many churches in America reproduce? And the answer, uh, a lot of people would give, maybe 10% to 20%. The answer is 4%. Imagine this. 96% of churches in the U.S. do not reproduce. No wonder we have such a problem with, with churches. And we are, the churches that we have are in many ways becoming older and dying. And so unless we reproduce, we will not be able to bring Christ's community into a community. See, I, I think for us, we misunderstand the purpose. That the ultimate purpose of the church is to already declare Who has already won? And when you declare who has already won, who has already unlocked the gates of hell, then you have the understanding, wow, 
our mission will be accomplished. It's not one of those missions that, that you hope that you will accomplish. It's a mission that has already been accomplished. And our job is to release, to share the good news, to release people from captivity. You know, it makes a big difference, doesn't it? When you know what the future outcome is. I remember uh, many years ago, a uh, long time ago in Los Angeles, there was a, this mythical team called the Lakers that used to actually win basketball games. Uh, <laughs> they don't exist now, but, but it, according to history, they once existed. Well, the Lakers were, you know, as an L.A. person, you know, I follow the Lakers and the Dodgers. It's kind of written in the, the L.A. code that you had to do that. So it was game seven of the NBA Finals. And I remember uh, coming from Chicago. I, I studied at Trinity uh, in, in Chicago. And, and it was, as we were flying back, it happened to be game seven. And so I couldn't watch it. So I was in the air. So I had my wife record it on, her DVR, uh, on our DVR. So when I was getting home, I, I wanted to watch the, se- the seventh game. Well, as we were descending into LAX, you know what the pilot did? <laughs> The pilot, don't you hate it when you sit next to somebody at a movie and they tell you the ending? Well, that's what the pilot did. The pilot said, uh, I'm, uh, congratulations, Los Angeles. You are now the world champions. So he blew it for me. He, I knew what the score was. And so anyway, I drove home to watch the game. And something happened as I was watching the game. It's just kind of one of those weird roller coaster rides. As you're watching the game, you started to go into the game, and there was, it was the fourth quarter. And just before the game was about to end, about two, three minutes before, one of the point guards named Derek Fisher threw up a shot and he missed. And I said to myself, I was yelling at the TV. I said, Lakers are going to lose. Lakers are going to lose. And then it hit me that the Lakers had already won. They said, the game's already been played. But in my mind, I was playing along with it. And this is the thing about the church is that we have failed to recognize that, that Jesus had already won. That our job is to participate with the plan of God as we establish churches in whatever community that God has called us. We are participating in the victory of Jesus. Amen? But you see, how do we plant churches? And this is where the second part is so critical, is that we need to develop leaders. You know, what what Paul did when he went around, uh, after he went to a city, uh, he would present the gospel some people, especially the Gentiles, will come to faith. But there was this sort of rhythm that, that we see. And in Acts chapter 14, verse 21, 22, uh, Paul had been preaching to a different city. Notice this. And this is, this is sort of his missionary journey. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. So that, that was sort of what Paul did. He would go to a city, preach the gospel, go to another city, preach the gospel. And then he would circle back around to those same cities strengthening the souls, encouraging them to continue in their faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And then notice what he does in the last verse. And when they appointed the elders for, for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. The second thing that Paul does, as well as what Jesus does, is establishes leadership. See, the pro- one of the problems that we're seeing in, in sort of the world around us, or even, uh, contextually here in the U- U.S., is that we need to plant churches, but we don't have enough leaders. And what, what's happening is a lot of churches are investing, uh, are getting older and older. I, I was in Japan um, maybe about five, six years ago. And one of the statistics that they gave us in Japan is that most of the churches in Japan, the average age is 60 years old. 
and they have about 50 people, and they're getting older. And I asked the question, where are the younger leaders? And a lot of them sort of gave this sort of blank face. They said, oh, we don't have any younger leaders. And the church has become, in some sense, a home for, for the elderly. And one of the things that, that, that stirs my heart is this, is that we are called, if we want to plant churches, it begins with godly leaders. It begins with younger leaders and investing in leaders. Uh, I was telling this uh, to Todd yesterday. That there's a verse in, in Numbers chapter 8, which is fascinating. It was talking about the, uh, the Levites. And did you know that God, uh, the Lord commanded Moses that the Levites were to serve the temple or attend to the meeting to do their priestly duties. Levites, by the way, were the, the priests for the whole tribe, all the tribe. They were one of the tribes that, that ministered to everybody else. But it said this in chapter 8, that the Levites were supposed to serve in the tent of the meeting from the age of 25 to the age of 50. And then at 50, they are to, quote-unquote, retire or to step back and to empower the new generation of leaders. You know what I believe needs to happen is that we need a new call, a new generation of leaders because the church in many ways, as we are becoming older, we are losing a vision for the next generation. And it's, it's, it's really funny, how, you know, Todd and I talk, I, I just turned 50 this last year and I feel like, I, you know, I'm, I'm still 30 in my head or I'm still 20 in my head, but my body says, no, no, I'm not. And it, it's, it's pretty remarkable how quickly time has passed. But notice what Jesus did. Jesus' primary strategy of transforming the world were 12 men. That these 12 men became the revolutionaries that ultimately caused the revolution. So how do we then develop the next generation leaders? It goes back to the Great Commission. We develop the next generation of leaders by making disciples. And this goes back to Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. It says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you to the end of the age. The greatest way for us as a church to develop leaders is by starting by making disciples, by reproducing ourselves in other people. And as we make disciples, by the way, that's the key verb in that passage. As we make disciples, then we get to go We get to share the gospel to all people. And this is, again, one of the problems in the the church is that we're not making disciples. That we are producing a generation of consumers that come to church that sort of click off their box of of sort of their spiritual responsibility. What's sad is that the fastest growing group in America are what we call the nuns. Now, there's a chart here I want to show you that just kind of gives you an overview of, of what they call the nun zone, that the one in three adults under the age of 30, one in five, basically say they have no religious affiliation. And primarily this generation are the younger generation. And what's happening is as people are moving away from faith, it's not that they're moving away from spirituality. Actually, the, the survey shows the opposite. People are actually more hungry for spirituality. But you know what they're substituting the real faith for? Substitute faith. They're replacing, uh, instead of uh, the true Christ, they're, they're replacing it with, with witchcraft, with, with other things. And that's become a big thing in this new millennial culture. And I want to challenge us that if we as individuals are not making disciples, 
then it goes back to the other problem. Then we, as a group, are not going to produce leaders. And if we are not going to produce leaders, we are not going to be planting churches. See the sort of how all these things fit together. You know what I love about First Family? Is that you are a church that is doing all three. I had a chance to meet uh, uh, one of uh, church planning uh, interns, residents, Nick, yesterday. To see that you are willing to invest in somebody who are, who's going to be not investing necessarily here for the future, but who's going to be investing for the kingdom of God. And that you have the generosity to do that. For the last uh, 10 years, uh, actually the last, um, I have a little chart of so, some of the churches that we've planted. But it goes all back to the same principle. We've discipled, uh, we make disciples, and out of that, but we produce leaders. And, and, and so we've planted about 10 churches. But you know what? Planting churches is really about leadership development. That if you plant godly leaders, then ultimately you're going to produce healthy churches. Remember at the very beginning I said small things matter? They do. You know, the greatest uh, parable for me, and I, I go back to this over and over again, is the parable about the mustard seed. You know how Jesus described the kingdom of God? In chapter 13, there are seven parables that Jesus gives. All these uh, parables sort of describe for us how the kingdom of God will expand. And in this particular parable, he shows us the smallness of size that has the greatest impact. It doesn't take a mega church to cause a revolution. Oftentimes, it takes a small church that is willing to be used by God. It says in verse 31, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, when it grows, it becomes the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. Have you ever seen what a mustard seed looks like? You could hold hundreds in your hand. Let me show you how. That's a mustard seed. Jesus is using a, 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 a sort of an ancient Near East description of, of what they all knew. He was talking about the, the sort of the, the quantity or the size of that seed. It was the smallest seed in, in, in that area. But here's where the analogy is, is so powerful. The smallness of that seed becomes that. That's a mustard tree. And Jesus is making the point that the gospel in itself causes the revolution. That our job as Christians, as, as a family of God, is to make disciples to develop godly leaders and eventually participate with God in planting churches. I want to close off one, with one very personal illustration uh, 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 about my history. I, I'm Korean by, by birth, um, by heritage. But this is how revolutions take place. Richard Stern uh, of World Vision uh, talks about the d- domino theory of spiritual impact. And he, prov- he, he gives the story of how one person, imagine in this room, all of you are mustard seeds, how one seed can be planted in the ground, cause a revolution. In 1880s, there was a man named Robert Wilder. Robert Wilder grew up in the mission field of India. And eventually he was preparing to go back to the field. And during college, he even signed the pledge that said that he will become a missionary. But during his college years, he became physically ill. And so he was unable to travel uh, extended uh, periods, especially at back then, during the 1800s. India was a very, very uh, difficult place to live. 
So instead, he said, you know, God is calling me to a new mission. Instead of me going, I'm going to start calling other people to go. So he started going around college campuses. And he started sharing the gospel and calling people uh, to go to the mission field. And during his, one of his preaching tours, he happened to be in Chicago, uh, he spoke at an audience, and there was a man named Samuel Moffat. Chicago, a young college kid. Samuel Moffat signed Robert's pledge. And within two years, he landed in a small hermit nation called Korea. Now, a few years later, as as Samuel was preaching the gospel, it was a hard place. Korea was was one of the hardest places to preach. There were very few people that would even acknowledge and believe. I was thinking about the missionary sharing about Somalia. Well, he shared with a man who was sort of disillusioned with Taoism. And, and his name was Kil, uh, Kil Sun Chu, and he trusted Christ after this relationship began to foster. And quickly what happened was another domino fell. And, and what ignited in Korea in 1907 was a revival. It's called the Pyongyang Revival. Ironically, that's the capital of North Korea. That's where Christianity began. In January of that year, spontaneous prayer and confession broke out during a regular prayer meeting. Thousands and thousands of people became Christians. And these days, um, that, that people consider that the starting of the Korean church. When he died in 1935, Kil Sun Chu, 5,000 people attended his funeral. What's remarkable about that story is that Korea is the only East Asian nation that has, uh, ha- has a large number of Christians. Over 30% of the population are Protestant, are evangelical Christians. Next to the U.S., Korea is the second largest sending mission country in the world. And you think about the scope and the size of these Koreans, and, and I'm a result of, of, of the missionary that came many years ago. My grandparents were one of the early converts in North Korea. And as a result, they started churches all across. Isn't it interesting how revival and church planting always go together? That when there's spontaneous prayer happens, revival takes place, and churches get planted. What's even more remarkable is that out of that little nation of Korea, the gospel is now spreading to China. Here's the statistic that, will, that, that may su- surprise you and shock you. In the next 10, 15 years, the largest Christian nation will be China. There will be more Christians in China than any other place. All that happened after 1940, all because of small seeds being planted in the ground. And so I want to challenge you as First Family Church that this part of global evangelism you are all participants of. It's not that you just write a check, that all of you in many ways are part of God's overall plan, that you are the seed that wherever God places you to be planted, to be fertilized, and to eventually bear fruit. You know what excites me? is that it doesn't take a lot of people to cause a revolution. It takes some crazy people who are willing to preach the gospel to turn the world upside down. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, I'm so thankful to be here, to be reminded, to be a recipient in my heritage of of an American missionary many, many years ago, over 100 years ago, who was willing to listen to the call to make disciples. 
And as he went to this country of Korea, he found the young disciple and developed him as a leader. And then from that caused the revolution of planting churches. And today, we are thankful for, for that heritage. But we know that the gospel is just as powerful it is now as it was back then. And what we need is a revolution of people's hearts to be turned upside down. Unless our hearts are turned upside down, we can't expect the world to turn upside down. So I pray, Lord, that you would remind us of this as we focus on going, that global outreach, it begins here in this place, in our hearts. And I pray for those mustard seeds that are here, Lord, that that we can start expanding and building and growing so that your name and your fame will spread to all nations because ultimately you win. Amen.